what I learned is that I was really good at being me. And I, you, you mentioned it earlier, and I had never thought of it in those terms. Isn't that amazing that I'd never thought of, thought of it in the terms of alignment, mm. uh, which is a huge, huge joy giver in life. This is Epic Ordinary Lives Podcast. Welcome to episode 29 of Epic Ordinary Lives, the podcast that is grounded in the belief that your story matters and that the telling of your life story can help other people. I believe that if we share with others the journey of our lives, including all of the good things and all of the hard things, the positive aspects and the great challenges, that these stories can help everyone involved, the person telling the story and the person hearing the story. This week, I have a very special guest. It's my dad, Rick Burcham, and we are specifically talking about his journey going from really an aimless college student who had lots of passions, who worked hard, but really had no idea what he was going to do for a career. And this tells the journey of how he pivoted, how he stopped from going in one direction, and how he swung into a different path entirely to enter education and eventually become a teacher, and a teacher that a lot of people who even may be listening right now uh, taught. He was ultimately a beloved teacher and hilariously, he never had any intentions of this when he was first in college. So this is a conversation that tells uh, how, how that journey went along and the life lessons along the way that he's learned. I do want to note that in the telling of this story, he does talk about his sister, my aunt Phyllis Burcham, who actually passed away last year. And she lived with cerebral palsy. And she grew up in a time where if you had a disability of that nature, you didn't have the same opportunities as a person does now. Not that it's easy or problem-free for someone with a challenge of that nature, but a lot of the terminology, people-first language, a lot of the ways that we now think about someone with a disability, a physical disability, mental, whatever, those, those terminologies are, weren't present at that time. And Dad wanted me to note that some of the language that he's using when he tells the past and tells his sister Phyllis's experience, it's using the language very purposely that was used at that time. Aunt Phyllis personally would talk about how she was handicapped. She would use 
that exact language to describe her experience, even though that's now not what we would typically use. In fact, the place that she lived for most of her life was originally a an assisted living uh, home called the Home for Incurables. That was literally the name of the institution. And this was in a time uh, in the 1970s after her mother and my dad's mother died. This was during a time where people with these challenges in their lives did not have the opportunity to go to school, to go to public school, to have a an experience that even resembled anything like uh, whatever you want to call it. I, I, I refrain from using a standard experience because nobody's experience is the same, but there just weren't the same kind of opportunities for, for people that were faced with these experiences. I mean, one thing dad wanted me to mention is that it was you as a family with a family member that had a, a special need that had a, a disability, you stood to receive more in government funding if you institutionalized the family member than if you allowed them to live in the home. And Aunt Phyllis did live in the home, and that's where her story converges with Dad's because he did uh, enter uh, a special ed background. So I just wanted to say that at the top that uh, he is using language, being very sensitive to the fact that this is this was based around his sister's experience and her reality. Another important uh, little nugget before we get started is that he mentions uh, a series called The Homewood Stories, and this is a series of books that he is writing right now uh, that are stories that he has wanted to tell for a very long time. So he references it by name. He will eventually be releasing those stories, but I wanted to mention that as well because that comes up. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Rick Burcham on Epic Ordinary Lives. So I am here with my dad, Rick Burcham. How are you, Dad? I'm good. Doing well. I'm comfortable. Um, you are my feet up. And uh, yeah, no, I'm good. So the place where I'd like to start is that you were a teacher and a lot of people who might be listening right now were actually taught by you. And then you've probably got a lot of other folks that don't even know you at all. Uh, for those that don't, you were a teacher for decades of different grade levels and different focus areas, but you didn't really intend to be a teacher out the gate. Uh, at least as I remember it. So I, can you tell the tale of how you went on that path? Uh, the teaching story. Uh, yeah, where does it begin? Uh, I, I, I tried to tell this story in some sort of reasonable order. Uh, I think m my nature is to want harmony and uh, to want uh, 
the, I, I want order out of chaos and uh, and and I I'm a huge believer in fairness uh, so that doesn't mean right or wrong it, it means fairness it means justice that notion uh, so I think all of those things are they are personality traits that lend themselves very much to being a good teacher. Uh, so from my childhood growing up with a handicapped sister, uh, an older handicapped sister, uh, and having a lot of opportunities to work with her on things that she did not think she could do, and my parents didn't think she could do either. I was just so young and stupid that I didn't realize they were turning it over to me because they thought it would keep me busy. They didn't realize that I was consumed by it and wouldn't let it go. Now, if that makes it sound like I was some gentle teacher, I have never been a gentle teacher. I have never been a patient person. That's not my thing. But Correct. so I think I started young at, I had, a, I had an ability to, it's not lead a group, but it, I had an ability to get people to share a focus and to share a goal. And I did, I had, I think I had a, uh, I don't know if it was a gift, but I had, uh, I had a nature that wanted that and maybe enough gifts to be able to pull it off. And so I went to college with no intention of being a teacher. I never thought about being a teacher while uh, I was in high school. Uh, I didn't think about much of anything in the way of a career path. I had none, zero. When I went in my senior year at Overton High School in 1971, before I graduated, uh, that, you know, whatever, April, or May, uh, May, I guess, uh, we had to go in the guidance office and they had to sign off on you that you were going to graduate. And, uh, and it was just a routine thing. And they were supposed to counsel you, of course, on what you might want to do in college or if you weren't going to college. And Oregon was huge and had, I think we had seven guidance counselors. It was pro that's probably too many. It was a lot of people. I'm probably including secretaries, whatever. But I know I sat in there. You got out of class, you know, for them to talk to you. So that was all right. So I'm sitting in the waiting area, waiting for my guidance counselor, who I had never spoken to in the three years I was there, uh, to call me into her office. And she looked at my transcript, which wasn't that good. I done well in the things I'd really enjoyed and I had not done well and lots of other things. And so here she is, I could see her looking, looking down. Here I was, I was a student council officer two years in a row. I was the president of the chess club. I was the president, co-president of the Latin club. And, uh, and, and I had, uh, I was, there were 700 something people in my graduating class and I was number 125th, you know? So I hadn't exactly torn up the academic 
but I'd taken some hard stuff. And she looked at it, and I realized she was, she was, she didn't have any idea what to say. Four years of Latin, you know, but you're not an academic person. And so she, she looks up at me and says, liberal art. And, and I thought, liberal sounds good. I think I'm more liberal than conservative. So liberal, I'm not much of an artist, but maybe, maybe there's more to this, another layer. I had no idea what she was talking about. But I went to college in 1971 at Memphis State then, and I discovered that there were hard classes and there were much easier classes and that degrees had had course studies attached to them. Some of them had really hard classes attached to them. And some of them had pretty easy, but, and they would all lead to a college degree. And at that time, if you had a college degree, you were an educated person, even a bachelor's degree stood out. And in a house where my father never went to high school, uh, you know, so it, it was, my goal was to get a college degree. All I had ever been told was you've got to go to college and graduate, get a degree. So I discovered that sociology was a lot easier than a lot of the other ones. And, uh, and, and so I majored in sociology. And I was just having, you know, a good time getting through uh, ups and downs, but mostly. I'm sorry, you chose it because it was an easier path? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Just just finding out, Aaron. So, uh, yeah. No, it was interesting. I'm not saying, but, oh, my gosh. You know, it was much easier than chemistry or biology or right. math right. or, you know, or engineering or computer programming or, you know, or even history or, you know, it, I, I would – I would guarantee it was the easiest bachelor's degree on campus. Guarantee it was the easiest bachelor's degree on campus. And coincidentally, the one that was going to have the least amount of bang. You know, you weren't going to walk out of there and you, you know, I, people were saying, what are you going to do with this? And I said, I don't know. Uh, and they said, well, you know, you can get a job probably as an assistant manager. You know, because you'll be an educated person. And my last semester, uh, <clears throat> I, it was four years. My last, so I finished three and a half. I was working the whole time. And I went in, uh, and you had to see the person at the whatever office. And they had to sign off on you graduating if you took. I had 12 easy hours left to graduate in May uh, and with a bachelor's in, in sociology. And, and I walked out of that office and I walked over to the student center to go get a 10 cent cup of coffee. And on the way, I started, now this was, you know, like this was December or January, you know, the, <clears throat> that semester hadn't started. And uh, so it was cold. And I, I, it may even have been snowing. I remember something was dropping. So it may have been, a, you know, cold rain or something. 
wasn't heavy, whatever it was. But I was walking across campus, and I went, yeah, man, you've done it. Wow, first person in your family, only person in my family before you, you came along that uh, got a, a degree. And uh, so I uh, was walking across to the student center and said, yeah, way you go, man. You know, just this semester, and then I guess you'll get a real job. Because I'd always just had, you know, jobs and a real job. Yeah, like doing what? And I had no idea. What I, zero. It wasn't like, well, maybe this is calling you, or, well, you've always been interested in this. Nope. Zip. Zero. And so I kept walking. And I walked over to the special ed department, which was in a portable, and because it was so new. And I thought about education, but then I thought, whoa, my mother was a special ed teacher, even though she never had a degree. And you know that story. They called her at home because she had, her qualification is she had a handicapped daughter. And they, and she goes, I don't know how to teach. And they said, yeah, but you're not afraid of handicapped. And back then, they didn't have special kids. Handicapped, Phyllis didn't ever go to public school. Handicapped, if you were handicapped, you didn't go to school. And so they started then with this idea that we'll have a special area for kids that were handicapped. And she had, good gracious, every grade level, every disability, some that were, their disability was that they were gifted and were losing their minds in a slow class that wasn't, wasn't challenging them, and they drove the teacher crazy. So the referral process was, you're in Miss Burchard's room now. And that was it. They just go knock on her door, and I'm in your room crying. I'm in your room now. They knew where they were. Uh, but I didn't think about teaching. I thought more about doing research or designing things. I, I I had lived with a physically handicapped person all my life. And, uh, and so I, I thought I had some ideas. I thought I would have a take on, on stuff that maybe other people didn't. And teaching at least was a career if that's what happened. And I went over and talked to Dr. Shafani, who was the, uh, associate head of the department and he loved my mother she had been taking classes under him and he was excited to have me and we plotted out a year and a half that would get me through uh, a degree you know this is after three and a half years uh, of undergrad already but I was not just changing majors I was going from the school of arts to the school of science you know uh, and in, in education. Uh, and so I discovered early in the classes that I knew a lot because I had grown up in the situation that I had. Uh, and I knew, I, I, you know, I, I, I had a take on stuff. I, f I felt like I had found something that I thought I could probably belong in, but I, Still, I wasn't thinking about being a teacher, really. Uh, and then you, you know, uh, you 
I student taught and uh, because I had so many classes in sociology, <laughs> I had a, I had a, you know, a minor in, uh, in sociology, which meant that they, they had me teaching. <clears throat> I did student teaching in special ed, but I also did student teaching in, uh, in history is where they put me. And, uh, and I can't say that I was particularly good in either one. I had a great uh, teacher that helped me, Carol Wilson. She passed away now for learning how to become a special ed teacher. Uh, uh, she taught me a lot of things that stayed with me my whole career. But again, I really wasn't what I was planning on doing. And <clears throat> I was, you know, I was going to do it until, until I figured it out. I had sucked at teaching history. Uh, I just wasn't, classroom control, just, I had no, I hadn't had a clue. Uh, and, and then I was rescued by the head of the department who said, you know, hey, you want to get a master's and we'll pay you 250 bucks a month and your tuition and books uh, to get a master's degree, which I got in a year. Uh, and again, my focus wasn't on being a teacher. My focus at the beginning of my master's was on, you know, being one of those, being a professor, uh, which seemed like a, a really good job. <laughs> uh, and like a lot of people go to college, they see a professor and I'm like, yeah, I want to do that. But I, I knew I had to go teach for a while. And, you know, so I came out, was a, wasn't a very good teacher at the beginning. Uh, I, it's a hard job to learn. Well, uh, hold on, hold on a moment because, uh, you've, so, so this was a decision that was, uh, the original decision of the major was, was made in such a way where, where you, you, you were, you weren't making the decision from some sense of deep alignment. You weren't making it really by choosing a thing. You were just not choosing to not get a degree maybe is a way to, to think of it, but you yeah. still course corrected in some way and made a pretty radically, I mean, you increased the amount of time and, and the amount of work you were going to have to do. So, so I would assume that you, as you were describing, uh, realizing the dead end maybe of this sociology degree, when you did make the decision to pivot, you talked about how, you you did start to feel maybe that you were doing well because of your perspective, but did you feel a sense of rightness? Did you feel any, I, I know you still didn't think you were a teacher, but if you, if you felt strongly enough to change course, did, was there some sense that you were on a better path? You know, <clears throat> Rubel and I, my brother Rubel and I have talked about this a bunch of times that, that, Growing up in the house that we grew up in, there just really wasn't direction. There, we were, we worked, you know, the direction, the dream uh, was, was Barney's dream, our father's dream. And so we were, our goals growing up, you know, the things that your father and mother, for that matter, wanted you to be good at 
we were really good at, you know, but they were working for our father on that farm or on whatever projects he had, you know, but they were to fulfill his dream, his goals. So it, it really was an odd thing to get to college and start taking classes and realize that, you know, you, I look back on it now, but when you and I, this conversation that we just had, and I am astounded by how, how unfocused you, you were asking me and you asked it well about even when I started in the education classes that I feel aligned, you know, was I, or was I still not aligning myself with something that I wanted to do? I can't say I ever did. I can't say, I can't tell you that I have made a a decision besides having you. I don't think I've made a decision where, uh, where it was extremely well thought out and, <laughs> you know, and it fulfilled a dream. Maybe, maybe teaching in Europe Maybe I, I would have to say the teaching in Europe thing, uh, living in Europe was for somebody who grew up reading European history, you know, it, you know, you lived there three years and you visited for three more and you've been back several times since, you know, that where we lived, you could get on your bike and ride to a castle, you know, and, you know, on a Tuesday. You know, it was, it was easy. You could, you know, it just wasn't, we, there was not a day driving home that we didn't go, wow, wow, we live in a fairy tale. You know, we live in a, a land where fairy tales were written. And so I, I don't know, other than that, I can't tell you. No, I didn't plan on being a teacher. And when I started teaching, I didn't plan on staying with teaching. Uh, it was a job. It was a job. It wasn't a career. It was a job, like all the other jobs I had, selling shoes, loading trucks, you know, doing yard work, all the other jobs I'd had. I didn't want to do them as a career. Uh, I worked hard at everything I did, but uh, when I first started teaching, it was just a job, and it was a paycheck, and uh, it wasn't till my my fourth year that I started getting sucked into it, where I started, I, I knew I was doing good, not universally, but I knew I was doing, I was making a difference with a lot of kids. I knew that, but I, it wasn't like somebody else couldn't have done. I wasn't doing anything magic. You know, there wasn't, I was working hard, uh, but, uh, and I, and I've had, I'd had a good education. I had, I was well prepared to go out there as, as well, except for the, none of us, none of us are prepared for classroom management. There's none of us. You can't, there's just no, there's just no way to do it. The first three years you ought to team teach, you know, <laughs> with an, an exceptionally talented, you know, teacher just 
day one, you're thrown into a classroom and you're expected to do the same job that somebody's been doing it for 25 years. There's no, there's no accommodation. There's no, well, we're going to give you less kids. Yeah, we're going to give you twice as much planning time. We're going to give you twice as many aids. We're going to, you know, no, <laughs> no. And it's a stupid system. And it, it, I don't, don't get me started there, but, uh, <laughs> but the, the fourth year, my principal had, at the end of my third year, the principal had walked into my room and said, you're teaching sixth grade next year. Get ready. That's the truth. This was in May, and we had like two weeks of school left, and I was teaching pull-out resource, and I would finally gotten where I probably, you know, was pretty good at it, and uh, and here he is saying, I'm losing two sixth grade teachers. I need, I need you in sixth grade next year, sixth grade self-contained. And I went, so I get a classroom to myself. I'd been sharing a portable. So I get this, I get a whole room. And I knew the teacher that was leaving. So I knew the classroom. The classroom was an end room. So I didn't have anybody on one end. You know, I was the end of a wing. And uh, so you walk out my door, you're on the playground. And uh, so, and it was hardwood floors. It was, it was those old classrooms. They were huge. They had a, a, a coat area, cloak room in the back with two, you know, you go behind a wall and you've got every kid had a place to hang their stuff up and put their lunchbox or whatever, you know, what locker. They were great rooms, and uh, and I said sure, and and uh, found out the university told me I was going to have to go to school all summer, take twelve hours, and I sent my transcript to the state just on a dare. Somebody said, you know, you really ought to just see what they'll give you. I had a master's degree in special ed. Uh, see what they say you have to take because. Universities back then didn't certify you. The state certified you, it still does, but now the universities have, this, the state isn't gonna certify you unless the, the university recommends that they certify you. But back then, I, I sent my stuff in and like two weeks later, I get my certificate in the mail, you know, saying, oh, you're you're fine. You're certified. What, what is K this certifying eight. you for? K eight. It was any um, subject in, increasing the grade levels that you're. Yeah, I was a I was a special ed teacher. I have my right. certifications were in handicapping, uh, multiple handicapping conditions, or something like that, and in uh, and uh, educable mentally retarded. That's what it was called back then. Uh, my bachelor's. Uh, but, uh, and sixth grade was hard, hard. Self-contained is hard. It's the hardest thing. I, and everybody who's done it, every high school teacher who teaches a hard academic class would get their butt kicked in, a, in an elementary self-contained class. They may, they may 
turn out to be spectacular, but at the beginning, they would be utterly whipped because you know that you have to do 20 preps. You, you know, you're, you're teaching spelling, you're teaching English, you're teaching grammar, you're teaching reading, you're teaching math, you're teaching social studies, you're teaching art, you're yeah, teaching everything. Class. You know, you're teaching every subject. They didn't pull out then to go get, the, they pulled out for PE. And so it was, yeah, it was hard. That first year, that I, my fourth year, I was, I was getting better at it by the end of the year. My fifth year, I had this spectacular class. I had this, they're the ones that kept me in education. And I'm still friends with, with a lot of them on, uh, on Facebook right now. I'm uh, Ricky Jackson, Stephanie Barrett. If you're listening, you know, I, I know there's probably some other folks on Facebook, but uh, they were in that class. And they, that class was so much fun. They were a great group. And we had a ball. I started figuring it out. And I quit smoking. And so I didn't have to leave the room to go down to the teacher's lounge. <laughs> a lot of people listening may not even know that you smoke. Uh, no, I was young and stupid. If, if you want to know why I smoked, it's called peer pressure. You know, the, <laughs> The toughest guys in our high school smoked, and I wanted to, I wanted to feel like I kind of belonged with them a little bit. And I'd grown up in a house with two smokers, so you know it wasn't like I wasn't around cigarettes. And uh, and everybody who starts knows you don't start smoking packs of cigarettes. You just have a couple of cigarettes, and you know it, you go days without smoking. And then you buy that first pack because your friends say, quit buying. And, you know, and then it's, then it's, yeah. Then it's an addiction. Did it for nine years. But, uh, yep. But, uh, and then we, you know. You were talking about that fifth year, that fifth class that really changed. Fifth year, really. I've, I've wondered often if that class had been had been a really hard class, what I would have done. The thing is, they were going to move me to admin. I was already being, here I was a 6'2", 190-pound, loud. My first year in teaching, I was in charge of buses, and I was the, the principal's uh, attack dog. I was the one, she gave me her paddle. She was 65 years old and retired the next year. She gave me her paddle and said, I want you to paddle kids. And so they would call me to the office to go to the office. And I would walk into the office and she would say, you know, so-and-so, get so-and-so, give him three licks. And I would give him three licks. You were literally immersed. You literally would. I was the angel of death. If you think of how kids got to where, you know, I was, you know, they looked forward to seeing me in the hall. That first couple of years, when I walked down the hall, kids gasped and got on the other side. I was the angel of death. I had a paddle in my back pocket. You taught with a paddle in your back pocket. 
I was because I had to have it when you know it was time to go. Teachers could could beat you back then, Eric. <laughs> they could they could beat you when you were good. That was my joke when we were when people do that. Uh, you know, when I was your age, you know that stuff. The right. Walking to school uphill both ways. Uh, I've always added we were barefoot and we walked on broken glass, but. Uh, and they they beat us when we were good. Uh, so, no, I look back on it. But again, your question was, how did I become a teacher? In increments, but the beginning of it, I, I really, I look back on it with some astonishment and, and some healthy skepticism when I, I'm around people who say, I know what I want to do early. I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm just, it's like understanding a bully. I never, I was never good. I, I mean, I tried to do everything I could to stop bullies, but I, I didn't understand how they thought. I still don't understand their thought process. So, if you don't understand why somebody does something or how they can, the conditions that allow them to do this thing, it's really hard to change the environment to a place where they won't feel the need to do that. And, you know, a fair, happy, you know, uh, supportive classroom isn't it. Because that described at least the last 20 years of my career, uh, the last probably 24 years of my career. Well, I, I want to go there. I want to go there, Dad, because a lot of people, if, if they're listening and they were taught by you, I think they're going to find a lot of this like shocking. At least I, 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 I've paddling kids. I was still paddling kids in my first couple of years at Collinwood because yeah. that's what you did. Yeah. Yeah. But how did you, so you, you establish, and I, I I think that this is great for anybody to hear who has, who looks at people that where they look and they go, that person knew that they wanted to be a fill in the blank since they were three years old. A great number of us don't have that experience, including you who did become, if I, if I may, somebody that was great as a teacher, somebody that made people, uh, feel of value and feel uh, seen and feel heard. And, uh, you know, I, you've got some measures of objective criteria that shows that you won multiple awards, but awards aren't really what it is. It's, it's all the, all the people that me as a kid growing up and being your son would, would, would see and hear for my entire life. People that loved you, people that, that, Again, you are a. If you're talking about that classroom environment that you were just describing, you created a place where it was okay to fail. You created a place where people were mutually supportive. It wasn't uh, perfect, obviously, but I was also taught by you. So, I'd like to understand. And this could be its own probably interview, but how did you go from? I mean, really. Like with everything else you've described, you were kind of, you were, you were not fully in even. It was a job. You were okay at it. 
you saw some success, but you weren't anything special and you didn't have any delusions. And then something changed. And, and maybe it changed because you had a class that you aligned with. But how did you then transform four years of struggle, you know, and, and challenges? How did you become the person that gave as much as you did? The person that could, that could address so many needs? How did it change? It was a process. Uh, there, there, were, there were some aha moments uh, that were utterly life career changing moments. Uh, but even, even when, when I started teaching in Collinwood, I wasn't married to being a teacher the rest of my life. It was just a job. And uh, some parts of it were really fun. Uh, became a girls basketball coach there, Collinwood Middle School. I'm still Maine and Green. And, uh, and it's, uh, and I loved, I loved that interaction because that was, that was real teaching. I mean, that was, to me, I loved the game. If there was something I felt called to it, it I, I didn't even really enjoy coaching games that much uh, because you, you really, I think most coaches will tell you, you maybe, maybe great coaches have feel like they completely control the game, but you, you don't. And uh, you know, so coaching games was, was putting a product out on the floor that you would work hard to prepare for this, this endeavor. But, uh, but then, you know, there's just so many variables and there's a screaming crowd. Those of you who know about playing in, in Wayne County and all around it, the gyms were packed and it, you couldn't hear yourself. And so uh, I loved the teaching aspect of it because I loved basketball and I'd never been coached. I'd never been coached. I, everything I had learned, I was a, a good ball player. Everything I learned, I taught myself from watching other people, just watching somebody on TV, on the NBA, and then going out and trying to recreate that without help. And uh, so uh, there were there were probably a bunch of things that happened that I don't remember. But the one that happened uh, was uh, Bob Armbruster. Who was the guidance counselor at the high school, and there's there's a whole bunch of interviews about the Armbrusters' uh, influence on me. But Bob taught a class. We all had to take in service, and we all hated having to go to in service, uh, but you had to go. And Pam and I and a few other teachers chose this class called Systematic Training for Effective Teaching, and most people did not. It was a very small, probably the smallest class. And it was taught by Bob Armbruster, who had never taught a day in his life. And retired Navy, who had gone on to work for TRW in, in London for like 12 years, maybe eight or nine years. Uh, and then they had moved to Wayne County to run so Grace could set, help set up the, uh, the gifted program. And he, 
uh, got a degree in, I think he had a degree in psychology and, uh, and became the guidance counselor at Collinwood High School and <clears throat> our Sunday school teacher too at uh, Cumberland Presbyterian there in Waynesboro. But a bunch of shout outs on this thing. Uh, but he, he taught this class, Systematic Training for Effective Teaching that he, he really just presented the material and we had to read it and study it and it utterly changed who I was as a teacher. Now, I don't know how valuable it would have been at my first year or second year, third year, fourth, I don't know. This was my seventh year and <clears throat> when I took this. And it's about goals of misbehavior and whose problem is it. It's, it's, all of those things, and when you first start teaching, you think you, you can do it all. You're, you're the adult in the room, so you think you can solve every problem. You think you can make everybody be friends with everybody, because why not? You're the adult, and you just listen to me. I'm wise. And instead, if a kid is not paying attention to you, I took it personally, like a whole lot of teachers still do. You took it as a personal insult to you. And it isn't. It's, it has almost nothing to do with you unless you make it about you. The, cla I, the class I had that year, if you could interview them, of course, I don't know if they would have gone, well, you know, when he started the year, he was more like this, but I shared everything. I would come in there, I think the classes were on Wednesday. I would come in on Thursday morning and go, guys, you won't believe what I learned. And, and I, I learned that you're not, if you don't pay attention to me, it's about you. It's not about me. It's about you. And I'm, I'm letting myself get angry at you. I'm taking it personally. And then, of course, it is personal because I treat you in a way where you go, oh, you think, you think that was bad? Oh, I'm gonna fight back. You, you can't separate me and call me out in class and go, Tommy, pay attention. You know, you can't do that kind of thing. And oh yeah, it's, oh, you called down the thunder, bud. And so it was that, that never ending fight where, because I guarantee you in any classroom with back then, good Lord, we had 35, 40 kids in a room. Somebody's not paying attention at probably 10% at any given moment aren't paying attention. Some of them aren't paying attention because they're bored. It's too easy. Some of them are not paying attention because they're just, they're lost. They were lost when they got in there. And they're just not ready for it. Didn't have the prerequisite skill, and we still keep passing people, passing people. Uh, <clears throat> and eighth grade, good gracious, you were so far behind. Uh, but it took this burden off me that I had to be this character. I had to be the guy who demanded a hundred percent attention, and and I got to look at these people as people. It was the first time I had ever uh, really, really 
allowed myself to look at them as just coworkers. We're just in this together. It wasn't me versus them. Now these are eighth graders. It wasn't me work versus them anymore. It was us versus the material. And so I'm going to do my part. I'm going to do my part. I promise you, I'm going to bust it. I'm going to do the best job I can teaching you this stuff. I'm going to do the best job I can. And, uh, and I'm going to not allow you to stop me from doing my job. I mean, you, I'll leave you alone if you, you know, I'll allow you to not do the work. If that's what you, I'm not going to fight with. Well, I'll try to help. I'll do as many examples as you want. I'll, you know, I'll do whatever you need me to do. But ultimately, when it comes down to it, I'm not going to take it personally if you don't. I'm going to allow you to fail if that's what you choose to do. I'm going to fight it as hard as I can, but I'm not going to take it personally. It's not about me. And uh, which meant that even kids that weren't paying attention and didn't work that hard and didn't make good grades, they were just as much fun personally. The relationships that we could have, it wasn't, I wish I could be more friends with you, but you don't work hard enough. And you, you make my job harder. And it just changed everything. Where I walked into a classroom, I couldn't wait to get in. I couldn't wait to go talk to them. I couldn't wait to teach this stuff and to have a good time and to challenge. And, you know, every day, I didn't mean there weren't days when there were hard days. Of course, everybody has hard days and you give a test that you think everybody is going to ace and, and they blow it and you realize you didn't do a very good job uh, of this and you had to go back or, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, you're human and you get frustrated. Uh, but it changed everything. And, uh, and I never, never went back. Rarely ever would I take anything personally again in the classroom. Rarely ever. It was all about I message. You just told people the truth. You know, you just told kids the truth. You know, I, I have to stop you. I have to separate you. You know that. I'm, I have to separate you from your buddies because you're just not letting me teach. And you guys can't, it, you know, it's, I know it's not about me. You know, I know you're not trying to make me have a hard day, but I got this job to do. And I, you know, I hope you understand, and I'll be glad to, I can see you're mad about it, but, you know, just, I'm sorry, uh, but I just, instead of, get over there, you know, that kind of stuff, and I'll tell you, it doesn't take a wizard to realize that if you're subject matter competent, and you're, you have fun in your classroom, your kids are going to probably want to go your kids are going to enjoy your classroom. And I was confident, you know, I worked hard to be confident at what I did, but I was in a good mood. I really literally loved seeing them every morning and it wasn't an act. It wasn't an act. My last year standing out in the hall in Heidelberg Middle School and Heidelberg Journey with those kids coming down the hall, 
welcome to Attleboro Middle School, home of the Panthers, you know, every morning the whole year. I spoke to every kid that came down that hall, whether they were in my room or not, and have relationships to this day with kids that I never talked to uh, because we just got to be friends. We would talk. They would stop and visit. Uh, so the the stuff where you talk about where kids remember being in my classroom, they remember being challenged. They remember being treated with respect and the stuff that I get that gets shared with me, uh, getting treated fairly. I, if they remember that I was extremely patient, uh, they're probably, they were fooled <laughs> by it. Because hurry up, hurry up, let's go, let's go, let's go, was, you know, was constant. But yeah, that was, it was. It, it, it's a beautiful, it's a it's a beautiful thing and I, I what I hear in what you're saying is this wasn't just a technique. Give me no, it wasn't a technique. It was a philosophy. It was a philosophy and it freed you. It, it did. It, it 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 had to I'm sorry for but it did have you used a good term there. It did have techniques. Mm -hmm. But the mm -hmm. techniques there were other people I think that that were in there that never utilized those techniques for any serious length of time because they were satisfied in what they were doing. It was working for them. So the need to change. I had always, always had this idea, this notion that if I were perfect at my job, then there would never be a need for fussing. They would, why can't everybody be, you know, happy in my room. Why can't I figure out how everybody can want to be in there? Why can't I have it so that everybody likes me? And uh, and this thing had techniques, but the techniques were they were if you didn't buy the philosophy, mm. if you and I fought mob armors to every Wednesday. <clears throat> Every Wednesday, you know, he would introduce this thing, and I would go, "Ah, that won't work." You know, I was and I was a loud voice in there. I was a respected teacher, and uh, and it was, I don't know how he, he was just this. He never taught, so he couldn't, he couldn't say, "Well, I've seen it work." You know, he never had. He just loved. He had, I don't know how he had found it, but he he just loved the whole idea of it. And it, you know it was it was sprinkling seeds on fertile ground for me. It utterly changed me, and it changed me overnight. It wasn't years later that I discovered. I see now. It was it was the light every week. That lesson was goals of misbehavior. You know, was one of those where I go, wait, he's not doing his work because he he's afraid he's going to fail. It has nothing to do with me. So he's displaying inadequacy, which is one of the terms. And, but it has nothing to do with me. Uh, I'm all, the only thing it has to do with me is that I'm the one presenting the material that the person feels so bad about that it's going to appear to be misbehavior when it was just a natural 
reaction to they didn't want to fail and they didn't want to feel even worse about themselves uh <clears throat> and once you once you roll that around and you swallow it down and go holy smokes look at my own example i went through sociology because i didn't want to go through another chemistry class or biology class or you know whatever i taught math for almost my entire career and i only took one class one college class of math it was required Crazy. for special ed teachers i took college algebra and i took it my last semester you know i took it and speech in my last semester because i was I was scared of both of them. I hadn't had math since high school. And and I'd been okay in math in high school, but I hadn't set the woods on fire or anything. I became much better in math when I taught it to people. Uh, but, uh, but of course I wasn't teaching advanced math. Uh, and so where you would need that subject matter specialty. Uh, but it just, it changed things it just and every week it changed them and from that point on i became this happy teacher it doesn't mean that every day there were a lot of days where my stomach was upset going in and a lot of days going home where my stomach was upset because no matter how good you are no matter how how great a job you do in a classroom there are a lot of kids who come in there with a lot of different issues and and there are just so many variables and you make decisions all day long all day long you know uh can i do this no can i sit over here no can i do that yes you know wait that's good noise you guys can keep going that's bad noise they sound almost identical except if you know what good noise really sounds like productive noise and like uh john lewis make trouble but make good trouble make necessary trouble yeah <clears throat> good trouble but yeah. yeah uh from that point for the rest of my career i had a ball in my classroom almost every day uh, you know you can have a ball doing stuff and still have hard days but right. from then on i really had and and it worked. It worked at Collinwood. It worked in every grade I worked in in Collinwood. It worked in Heidelberg, Germany, teaching kids from everywhere, you know, from all over. Army kids come from everywhere. My first year, I asked Alex Bragg, who's, gosh, how old is Alex now? She's uh, probably 30 years old now. Uh, Alex was the first, Alex Bragg was the first you know, person on the roll in that class and my first year at Heidelberg Journey. And I go, so Alex, tell us where you're from. And Alex looked up at me and went, oh man, you are new. <laughs> she really did. And she proceeded, I don't know, she proceeded to name like 11 places she had lived as an army brat. And you know, <laughs> I didn't, we didn't keep going down the road. You know, uh, how many of you have, ah, oh, yeah, yeah. They've, they've lived all over the place. And uh, from, cause they're, this was a headquarters unit, you know. So 
people working there had stripes or had rank. And, uh, you know, even the non-commissioned officers were usually had been, they were successful. They were very successful people. They were career driven people. And uh, so they had been in the service for some time and valued education as well. But uh, yeah, it, it aligned for me, it, using your term, that was the, the year that, it, that my natural ability to communicate people, which I do have, I am an empath, an empath so uh, to a great degree. Uh, and my natural desire for harmony and uh, structure that works for people, not just structure for the sake of structure, but reasonable structure that people can understand why. Uh, I don't understand why every teacher didn't let their kids go to the bathroom when they needed to go. I know a lot of, most teachers I knew didn't because they didn't feel like they could give up that control. I learned that as soon as the kids knew that it was utterly in their control, they used it sparingly, you know? Because they had the it freedom, like, because you they, gave freedom. You know, yeah, they knew they could go anytime they wanted. You know, if you're having a good time in the class, why go? You can go anytime you want, you know? So uh, at the beginning, they would use it too much. You know, there's freedom, this newfound freedom. And then they would go, oh, I missed, well, what, you guys are laughing. I just walked in. What was funny? I should have been here, you know? So that kind of stuff. But uh, the thing that you just said is that who you, what I heard you say, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, who you naturally were combined with what you were doing or, or some innate. Yeah. I think it was that seventh year. I think from then on, I think I got to, I got to relax and I don't mean that, in a I didn't have to work as hard. Nope. I'm sure I worked harder because I, at that point I was allowing myself to love all of my students Mm. to see them all in a different way. You're not there as you make my life easier because you have no needs from me. You don't demand anything. You're a good student. You have tons of support from home. I love you. (laughs) You know, I love because I love what you do for me, you know, make my life easier. But gosh, you're a challenge. And while on some, you know, esoteric level, of course, I love you. I don't get to enjoy you as much because our relationship has got this thorniness about it, this this challenge part. It let all that go away. You know, just it it meant that I got to enjoy everybody, regardless of whether they were really good at what I was teaching or not, and whether they were perfectly behaved or not. You know. I wasn't going to let anybody stop me from doing my job. And so, so there would be showdowns sometimes uh, with people, but 
you know, every, every teacher that's done it for a while learns how to avoid those things, but also learns how to recognize, okay, you're throwing down. We have, we, we got to shoot it out. You know, in this case, this is the kid in Walmart throwing their first fit with you. And you have to say, it doesn't work on me. It will not work. I will never allow this behavior to, to happen. I will never allow you to do this. And kids are smart, and they are. And kids almost always, almost always, I think every kid liked a happy structure. They liked being in a place where somebody cared about them and was genuinely glad to see them and would do, I would do as many examples as, you know, by the end it would be, you know, we, we were using Saxon math books in Heidelberg, uh, Heidelberg in Collinwood at the end. And, you know, they had 25 problems uh, or 30 sometimes, it depended on what grade you were in. But every lesson was this tiny little lesson. And then 25 problems. And the problems were, some of them were, were in math. Some of them were, uh, uh, were just computational stuff. Some of them were specific to that skill you had taught. But most of them were spiral, you know, review and always some word problems. And if we had, I always tried to have, I recognize that not every kid had support at home where they could go home and get somebody help them do homework. I, I understood that. And gosh, a lot of them had, had an hour bus ride home after school. So come on. So I would try to save enough time in class to get most of the homework done. Because yeah. again, it was, it was a positive review. It was a, let's be efficient. Let's get, let's every minute counts. And if, so if you're having trouble with one, raise your hand. You know, I'm having trouble with number eight. Okay, I'm going to do number eight on the board. I didn't do one like number eight. I just did number eight on the board. I learned that it's, it's one of those tricky balance things. If somebody really knows what they're doing, then four is enough to, to you know, four in a day is enough of those to reinforce that knowledge. If they don't know what they're doing, four is a waste of time. It just means four wrong answers. And so there's this, I would rather this person have, now they couldn't just copy the answer down. I had to show your work, but they had to copy from the board. But I would rather you have 25 right answers that you copied off me doing them on the board you're going to learn something from that process. I didn't just do the problem. I would be explaining each step. Uh, but I don't know. I just uh, don't be an adversary. I, you know, but you and I've had this conversation or a similar conversation before as good as I was as a teacher. And I was a good teacher. Uh, at the end of my career, especially I was a, a, a really good teacher. Uh, at like you would hope anybody that's been doing a long time, you know, you don't go, oh, that guy's a, that guy's an artist. You know, 
he's he's been an artist for 25 years, but he really sucks. You know, it's just that's not really, you know, it shouldn't happen. It can, but it shouldn't happen. Uh, but what I learned is that I was really good at being me. And I, you you mentioned it earlier, and I had never thought of it in those terms. Isn't that amazing that I'd never thought of, thought of it in the terms of alignment, mm. uh, which is a huge, huge uh, joy giver, I would think, in life, that if you can align your your natural tendencies with your philosophy, with your beliefs, with your job, then with your family life, with, you know, with where you live, uh, you know, uh, there, if you're a hunter or fisher person and you live in the middle of New York City, it's probably going to be really frustrating because you love outdoors. But if you love walking to coffee shops and, and people watching, living in, in Collinwood's going to be a, a more of a challenging uh, situation. So just even the geography of aligning your likes and dislikes. But that's what happened for me. The skills that just came naturally to me, teaching is telling a story. Teaching is acting. Uh, it, it, you're telling the story of how to divide fractions. It has a, you know, it has an introduction. You meet the characters, you know, Mr. Numerator and Mr. Denominator. You know, you, you meet these characters and you have to learn to care about them. And, you know, and, you, you know, it's, it is, uh, you know, it's an acting job of today. You won't believe what we're going to get to do. You know, you're going to learn how to multiply integers. Man, does it get any better than that? And so, uh, so I am all of those things. I am a storyteller. I do have a, a, a big piece of ham in me, you know. Uh, and so, yeah, uh, you know, and I do care about people. I do, I, you know, I do value people. I, I don't, I'm not a hater. Uh, if somebody really surprises me with their venom and stuff, I, they may make me angry, but I don't hate them. I just don't, I don't hate them. And I think I, and at the core of me, I think, you know, if we could just sit down, I bet you we could find, if we have, go have a beer together at Southern Griff, shout out. Southern Griff, if we could go have a beer uh, at well honky tonk, you know, I we don't want to, you know, we're gonna have to do some talking here, but uh, I think we would we would find stuff that we could agree on and get along with, and even enjoy the conversation, not just tolerate each other, you know, but but actually find a place where we we do align or we do have enough similarity in the way we we, we you know we handle that information or that part of our lives where uh so i i just assume that's in there uh and i'm and i'm not afraid to keep learning uh i'm not afraid to 
to uh, to go. I think I'm wrong. I think I've been doing this wrong. Uh, it, you know, you and I had a conversation not too long ago about a direction I was going in, in some Homewood story, uh, one of the Homewood stories, and and you were you were bringing up questions at a philosophical level. You were talking technically about the way I had written a particular passage, but it was based on a philosophy that I was not, was, was clearly did not share. And our conversation led me to be able, you know this, because we talked about it, that I was able to talk to some people later after that conversation in a much more uh, helpful way with some people dealing with some hard times. And I was able to deal with them, you know, help them or, yeah, help them uh, in a way that I had never been able to, never. Uh, so. Because you were willing to change your ways. Yeah, because I, I and I, I still take it back to step is that I was so sure I was right. I was so certain that I knew that I was right. And I was so wrong, so utterly wrong about so many things. And, you know, it was that inertia thing. You know, so many, so many people do a job the way they were taught how to do the job by the people who did the job before them. Not not by an expert teacher who could show you how to uh, sharpen a tool or whatever, or measure something. I hope that you enjoyed that conversation with my dad, Rick Bertram. It does end somewhat abruptly because we did a round two, and it was uh, quite a pivot from that conversation around his career and his life journey so I wanted to go ahead and stop this one at that point, and he will be back for a part two later in the future, and it will span other topics that share his story. If this podcast has benefited you and if you enjoyed it, you can share it with your friends and family, and if you're feeling quite generous, you can go to Apple iTunes and write a review. I will be back in two weeks to share another epic ordinary life. And until then, I hope that you can continue to enjoy your own personal journey and find the truly epic moments in your own experience. Take care.